edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view over the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February the 22nd, 2021. We have a list, uh, I'm sorry, a topic roundtable today. It'll be a mix of some things I want to talk about and some stuff from the audience. If you want to submit an email to me for a show like this, all you have to do is send it to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Make sure TSP sees in the subject line. That'll help me dig it out of the spam when it inevitably ends up in there. And uh, ask your question or make your point, or if it's like a link to a video or something you want me to look at, uh, make a very succinct one-sentence statement where it's understood what you're talking about. Hit the return key a couple times. Give me the details. You'll be more likely to, uh, to get through the screening process and on the air that way. Here's what we got today. Number one, Jack messed up. Yeah, last week... Uh, amongst a few other things that I messed up. Uh, I did not include Derek Bonpietro's segment on diesel trucks. I said I was going to. I introduced it, and then somehow I didn't. So I will play that for you today because it is good stuff. Uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about why a colder future is a bigger problem than a warmer one. Regardless of what you believe about climate change, it doesn't matter. This is historically accurate. We can look at human history. We can look at the recording of when temperatures went up and down and what happened to humanity. And colder temperatures are bad for people. That's I'm sorry. It's the way it is, and we'll talk about why. Then um, we'll talk a little bit about when the first time is I told you that and when the first time is I told you that you would probably see this happening in the 20s. Not the 20 degrees, the 20s like the years we're living in now. We're in 2021, so it's now the roaring 20s all over again. Uh, next, I have a question on the proper diet for livestock. Uh, Tactical Redneck has this question. Said, you know, Ken Berry talks about keto basically being the proper human diet, but what's the proper diet for our various forms of livestock? And it depends. Uh, Long-term seed storage and not overthinking it. We'll be talking about that today. Got a question on my vertical farm. I'm going to talk about what is up with it and what's coming next and why. The cost of uh, filling high-raised beds and what to do to cut it down. This is something I'm familiar with because I have almost no soil to work with. And I also have to build beds deep, not only because I need the depth for the plants to do well, but so that these little things called ducks don't eat everything. Because if you eat it, they'll probably eat it. Uh, next, I'm going to give you what I think really happened in Texas. Five points on that. I think you'll appreciate it when it comes to what happened to our power grid. And I don't think the problem is being honestly discussed anywhere. And somebody that sent me an article, they said it is the uh, the most accurate article that they've seen. Um, the, the headline itself is reeks of stupidity and, and, and bullshit. It collapsing. It's like inside the heart of Texas's collapsing power grid. It's not a collapsing power grid. This This happens all over the country. It happened all over the country. It was kind of a perfect storm here. And we'll talk about like what can be done to fix it and why it probably won't happen. Um, I have a question on leasing land for side income for events. This guy wants to do it for permaculture. Doesn't really know anything about permaculture. I'll talk about why it's not a bad idea, but it sounds like the beginning of poorly executing a good idea. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, and then I have um, a little segment for you guys to kind of restate something I've talked about a lot before with using a couple services uh, as opposed to the big tech services because these services actually pay you and let you pay 
the content providers that you uh, appreciate. So a pretty good outline of stuff for you guys today. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. Herbs are absolutely invaluable in my opinion. We have been given herbs by nature, by God, you decide how you want to phrase it, to deal with a lot of the things that humans will have to deal with in our lives. Herbs can do everything from acute response to like cuts and scrapes uh, and help out with that, to tonifying effects, to helping us relax, to waking us up, all very, very gently and all very, very safely. And if it's herbal and legal, you're going to find it at Western Botanicals. And, uh, man, you really should check those guys out. They're an outstanding company with real people that really care about you. Uh, check them out today at Western Botanicals. And uh, remember, herbs are not going to, let's say, cure cancer or fix you if you get in a car wreck and you need like a yield sign taken out of your spleen. But there is so much they can do for you. And I think it really is one of those things where we need to educate ourselves over time into the herbs that we need to have in our possession and available to us. No better place to do that than Western Botanicals. Next up today, the Free State Project at FSP.org. You really want to check the Free State Project out, guys. I mean, a lot of you guys are asking me about walking to freedom. Not everybody's going to choose New Hampshire, but there's a lot of great reasons to. And one of the ways you can find out more about that right now is just go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH. Imagine taking a vacation to a really cool place, really awesome place, mountains, gorgeous place. But with people on the ground that can help you out, kind of tell you where to go, what to do. And while you're doing that, you're kind of checking out what would it be like to live here. And I have to tell you, everywhere I go, I do that anyway, right? Um, There's not a place that Dorothy and I have gone that we haven't like found real estate magazines and we're sitting around in our hotel room or our cabin at night and pull up Realtor and see what's available in the area. Um, great way to check it out. Uh, FSP.org forward slash visit NH. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into this. Uh, we'll start off so that I don't forget this time. Um, Derek Monpietro was asked last week what he thought the best deal and the best quality available right now in diesel trucks was with brand new trucks. And I don't even know how I left it out, but apparently I did. So here we go. This is supposed to be on last Friday's show. Derek Bonpietro from the Expert Council on who makes the best diesel uh, engine and drivetrain right now. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a diesel truck question up from John. Let's get into it. Question. On TSPC 2786, another listener asked Derek, that's me, about maintenance on used diesel trucks. Derek made a mention to stay away from certain diesel engines, like the Duramax. If I'm buying a brand new truck, who, in Derek's opinion, makes the best diesel engine and drivetrain? Details. I own my own business and drive a lot of miles, so I'm fortunate enough, and it makes the most sense to buy a new truck every 150 to 200,000 miles which is about four years of ownership based on the mileage. I've always owned GMC gas trucks, and I've been very happy with them, but Derek may mention that the new Duramax engines are, in his words, no bueno. I don't know if I actually said no bueno. Spanish is a little rough. So anyway, what religion should I choose? The Power Stroke, Cummins, or Duramax? I'll be buying a three-quarter ton for my next truck, and the truck needs to hold up to the Ohio winters and road salt, which makes me nervous about the Dodge Ram. Thank you, John. All right, let's talk diesel trucks. Now, John, you mentioned that you had some previous GMC gas trucks, and I'll tell you what I really like about the previous generation, or which is really similar to the current generations. The Chevy LS engine, 
there's a reason why the whole aftermarket uses the LS and pretty much any other kind of engine swap or trying to get a modern driveline in an old car is because they make a lot of power, they're simple, they're dirt cheap to repair, they're just made by the millions. So really the engine in the Chevy is kind of the industry standard as far as gas V8s go. That's my kind of opinion, but when you're talking about putting a V8 in a Jeep or something else, sports car, the LS is the go-to. So I think out of all of the big three, the Chevy V8 is definitely king of the hill. The GM heavy-duty automatics have also been pretty good historically, whether we're looking at the Allison or the 4L80. They're all going to have problems, no matter what manufacturer you go with, but overall, they're pretty solid. Things I don't like about the GM from the suspension standpoint, I'm not a big fan of the independent front suspension. If you're working these things hard, especially doing plow duty, ball joints, wheel bearings, 30,000 miles if you're lucky, and we're talking about basically a whole front-end rebuild of the steering and, and suspension parts pretty often if you're using these hard. They just don't hold in alignment well. They tend to shudder and kind of break loose after a while. They're just really kind of still light duty compared to the Ford or the Dodge, which still use a straight axle, and both of those are now coil sprung, so they still ride pretty good. But the Ford has definitely beat everybody as far as the beef with the front axle. It's kind of the industry standard. So when it comes to the strength of the vehicle, I personally think the Ford is probably the strongest running gear. But if you've had good luck with the GMCs, go with it. So that's kind of looking at, looking at what you've already purchased and you're happy with. Now, let's talk about new diesel trucks. Or should I say the problems with new diesel trucks? What to expect, tons of power, pretty good fuel economy. These engines are putting out about 400 to 450 horsepower, 900 plus pounds of torque. And if you're going with the high output Cummins in the Dodge, 1,000 foot pounds. It's a huge number. All of these trucks across the board, if they're configured to their maximum weight rating, you're looking at 35,000 pounds plus of towing capacity. Now, I think you're crazy if you're using a one-ton truck for that kind of work, but that's their rating. So I think across the board, power, fuel economy, capability of the vehicle, and as far as like towing goes, they're all pretty close. So I don't want to get into the Ford versus Chevy versus Dodge from a performance perspective because, man, when you put them down on paper, they're all pretty similar. Now, all of these new diesel trucks are going to come with a 100,000-mile warranty, which is typically going to cover the engine and powertrain parts. Now, you want to make sure that you're reading all the fine details to make sure it covers all of the powertrain and maybe not just the engine itself, but when something is covered for 100,000 miles, you're tied to the dealer. So if you're buying a truck and we're spending, I'm assuming, probably $70,000 plus on a diesel truck that's fairly nicely optioned, it's a lot of money. You want to make sure you have the support structure there and you're not driving super far to get to a dealer to do a warranty repair or some kind of campaign on the vehicle. And you also want to have a good standing relationship with your dealer because you're tied to them for 100,000 miles, so you better be happy. Somewhere close by, you can easily get there. They're going to take care of you with a rental vehicle while your vehicle is being repaired, and you're happy with their customer service. There's no point in buying a vehicle where you're kind of stranded on an island because there's no support network for it. So if there's a Ford dealer next to you, I'd be looking at the Fords and making sure that if the product fits you, that's the deal you're going to go with. When I used to work in the dealerships, people would come in and we would have to service their vehicle and repair it if it was under warranty, but sometimes you didn't get pushed to the top of the list for repairs because you bought it somewhere else. So we'll fix it. We're not going to fix it today. It's kind of a game. 
The other situation, and Jack has talked about this on the podcast before, when you own a diesel vehicle, guess what? You get the one guy in the dealership that's diesel rated from a technician standpoint, and guess what? He's probably got a pretty long list of stuff to fix. So again, making sure the dealership has the equipment to work on diesel trucks, they should if they're selling them, and then making sure we have a diesel technician that can do those repairs, you're going to be on a waiting list. There's only usually one or two guys that can do that, so... Just be aware, when you're buying a diesel truck, you kind of get shoehorned into that specialty vehicle category. You can't really just take it anywhere. Now, problems on diesel engines. We've got one big problem with all of them. Since the mid-2000s, we've got very, very extensive heavy emission components, which is basically a particulate filter with a DEF fluid injection system. And this is really all to clean up the emissions. These parts are super expensive. And if you have to replace one on your own dime after that warranty expires, you're going to be hurting. So brand new vehicle, manufacturer is going to take care of it if there's any problems. But if you're going to own the thing long term, maybe a gas engine that doesn't have those emissions components on there would be a better option. But if you're really stuck on the diesel, make sure you set aside some money. So that way, if there's any kind of failures outside of the warranty, you can take care of it. Now, some of these, the uh, the Duramax and the older Ford Power Strokes have had some problems head gaskets leaking and things like that. The Dodge Cummins seems to be the best diesel engine out of all of them. I think if you were to ask somebody that wasn't biased, it makes the most power and it's probably the best architecture. It's an inline six, just like you get an engine in an over-the-road truck. I personally think the Cummins probably is standing a little bit above the other two, but the issue is it's surrounded by a Dodge. If you get the 2500 or the standard output Cummins in the Ram, you're going to get a Chrysler six-speed automatic, which is junk. Chrysler automatics are terrible. If you get a 3500 with the high output Cummins, you'll get an Azen 6-speed, which is a much better option. So if you go Cummins, go high output 3500 to get that transmission, it's a better option. The other two are using 10-speed automatics, which are fairly new to the market, so we don't know long-term are going to be for repairs. I would say that for the rest of the vehicle, it's a lot of personal preference. Do you want the ride comfort of the independent suspension? Do you want the beef of the straight axle chassis? The Dodge has air ride options, and there's also a coil sprung in the back, so it might have the leading edge on ride comfort for something like that. So I would say that you should probably just sit in all three trucks, drive them, touch all the buttons, make sure you're happy with it. You might have some that have maybe a little more creature comforts. I think the Dodge probably has the biggest touchscreen, but if that's important to you, you want to lean in that direction. To me, I really don't care about that stuff. I am going to throw a statement out that is 100% opinion. I love the Cummins engine. I think it's probably industry-leading, but it's surrounded by a Dodge. Not too happy with Dodge or the Ram manufacturer, whoever's making it now. They've had some rocky history. Really not impressed with the quality of the vehicle. Now, as far as the Duramax goes, they were really good when they started out, and then as they progressed, have started to get some problems with their new high-pressure pumps, head gasket failures, so I don't know if I'd be leaning to Duramax. Ford has had some really great Power Stroke engines. They transitioned into some newer engines that were redesigned, which had some serious problems, but a lot of those were emissions components related. But their newest engine seems to be a pretty solid offering. And honestly, I wouldn't be looking past the 7.3 big block option. If you can handle probably going from like 15 or 20 miles to the gallon down to 10 or 8, I'd be looking at that one as well. I think that's a solid offering, and the thing has a ton of power. I've driven in these vehicles. So I think I'd be looking at the Ford, honestly, uh, across all three of them. Personal preference, I like the styling. I think the cabs are very spacious and well laid out, and I personally really do not like the GMC styling. Ah, I want to say it. They're just really ugly in my eyes. So 
they're, they're square fenders and the, and the little turn signal built into the fender flare and the grill that just seems to be getting bigger and bigger. Oh man, the new Ford Power Strokes, the F350s are really just a uh, good looking truck. So I think in my opinion, if I was buying a new one, I'd be looking at the F350 or 250 Super Duty. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't really check the box for the diesel unless you, unless you have a heart set on it. I'd go with the big block, but that's just my opinion. Well, John, I hope that points in the right direction. Buying a new vehicle, especially one that's going to be very expensive, is certainly tough and is a personal preference, but I would always recommend make sure you have the right dealer network to support you in a new purchase, and overall, make sure you're just happy with it. Good luck truck shopping. Just to wrap things up, I really appreciate the questions, guys. Anything automotive or kind of technical-related regarding engines or generators, things like that, if you're thinking about taking a big trip and building an expedition vehicle or using a vehicle off-road or any kind of specialty purposes, shoot the question over to Jack. He'll get it over to me. Be glad to answer it, guys. As always, very much appreciated. So with that wrapped up, let's talk a little bit about the potential to go into a much cooler climate going forward. In 2008, I did a show talking about global cooling being the bigger threat of what we might have to endure in the future. And everybody told me I was crazy because, remember, we weren't calling it climate change in 2008. We weren't calling it global weirding. We hadn't come up with all these excuse uh terminologies for why global warming is not actually happening, right? We, we haven't, we, we, because what was going on at the time is every single hurricane and every record high temperature, even if it was a, you know, an obscure record, was being used to say, hey, look, it's very clear that it's getting warmer and warmer and warmer outside. But when you pull back and you look at the macro, we had a period of warming through the 90s and early 2000s, but it, it did not sustain And we are beginning to see climate moderate and cool down throughout the world. And I think that you can largely attribute this to, above all things, the sun and what we would call space weather. Uh, not just the sun's output and energy, but also the way the sun's electromagnetic activities affect the Earth's atmosphere. And I really want to come at this today from a standpoint of, Yeah, I talked about it. Yeah, I think it's going on. But let's just imagine that we don't know, because we, re we don't really know. This is my best guess. But if you were going forward, and the global climate could increase by about two degrees on average, or decrease by two degrees on average, everything that the hysterical people are telling you right now would lead you to believe we would be better off if the Earth cooled down a couple degrees than heated up a couple degrees. History says that's not true. Okay? Not my opinion. Not my opinion. It has actually has very little to do with science. When when you want to when you want to know what the results are of a thing, right? So we're not saying whether or not it's going to happen. We're saying if it does, what does it look like? We can look through the historical record of humanity, and we can see that warmer clients climates, and when we've had overall global warming, long before there were any fossil fuels, right? being used anyway and burned. When we had periods of global warming, humanity blossomed. That it ended up being good. Periods of global warming, we generally get warmer climate, wetter climate, and other than when it's raising, raining, we get more sunshine. All of these things, we need to grow food, even if we're eating cows and pigs because they eat vegetation, right? So this has been a boon for humanity. Likewise, there have been periods of cooling on our planet. 
And if you look at, for instance, the big waves of plague and other diseases, they go along with cooling. If you look at periods of time where uh, countries have experienced insurrections, it goes along with times of cooling. Famine and starvation, times of cooling. This is, again, this is not, I, I know people want to debate this thing, but this is, again, this is not, this will happen, and hence this is the result. No, what I'm saying is, if the planet cools, historically, we already know what it looks like. It looks like crop failures. Okay? That's what it looks like. It looks like crop failures. It looks like strain on energy reserves, which we just saw in Texas. It looks like people migrating from northern climates further to southern climates. That's what it looks like. It looks like increases in disease. It looks like drier climates, less rain. It looks like even though it's drier, you get a lot more clouds, and therefore you get less solar irradiation, and you have harder times bringing crops to harvest. Okay? That's what it looks like. And, I, and anybody listening to me that is really wrapped up in this whole, you know, anthropomorphic global warming idea, you can be right that that's what's been happening, but if the climate cools, it doesn't matter. Again, this is not about the mechanism at play. This is not about whether or not we are warming or cooling. This is about what it means if we're going to cool. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, now if you do turn to the scientific evidence. And you take all the politics and put it aside. And you look at the meteorological evidence and you look at the historical record of solar activity and the current pattern that our sun is moving into. The most likely scenario is cooling. The most likely scenario is cooling. And I just want you to, for a minute, if you can, if you're emotionally attached to this, I just want you to pull, put the emotion in your pocket Put your beliefs in your pocket or up on the shelf, and you, as soon as this segment's over, and i got about three minutes left in it, you can take it all back and shove it back in yourself and be all emotional again, okay? I just want you to think about this fundamental reality. If you live in a place where you kind of farm and, and grow food and what have you, because that's how people eat, and the climate gets warmer and wetter, what can you do to adapt to that? You can plant earlier. You can make better use of, of water. If it gets warmer and drier in your particular area, what can you do to adapt to that? Well, you can plant earlier. You can do drought-proofing. There's lots of ways to drought-proof a farm. Tons of ways. Okay. What do you do if it gets colder and drier? You can drought-proof the best you can, but what do you do when the climate gets colder? You have to plant later. You're more subject to then being hit hard when the, because even when you get cooler, you still get very hot summers. So by having a shorter lead up to the darth of summer, your plants are not quite as established and they get hit harder by the heat. And it's harder to bring a crop and you also reduce the total growing season. And you say greenhouses and wallapinis and all these, you know, earthships and all that's fine for homesteaders. But I'm talking about the person that's growing 40,000 acres of corn or soy or wheat or barley. You see the problem here. And COVID should have shown us, not COVID the disease, but COVID the reaction by government and the problems and dis supply disruptions that it's created, how 
close to the knife's edge our food supply is at any given time, globally. And I'm telling you, a colder climate is a problem. It is a big problem. And this is the irrational mindset of the modern human. If everything is the way it's supposed to be, whatever the hell that means to people, the climate should be stable. It shouldn't get warmer, and it shouldn't get colder. It should stay about the same. Again, this is something that we don't have to debate. All we have to do is look at the record for as long as science can kind of figure out what the temperature has been on the planet. Stability in our climate is not normal. Stability in our climate is not normal. Now, the, the timeline is so long that in the, an individual life or a couple, three generations, the, the climate can seem dramatically stable. But when you look at it over centuries and millennia, the climate of this planet is anything but stable. And that means you can go into swings at any period of time. And it means that we need to be designing our systems, because the government's not going to fix this. The government is going to hype it either direction it goes and say they need more money to fix it. And they need more power to fix it. They need more authority to fix it. They need more laws to fix it. You have to endure more restrictions on your life to fix it. That's their, that's their play. Because the state is like its own life organism. It seeks to reproduce, to grow, and to stay alive. That's what, it, that's what the state does. It's, it literally acts like a life form in that way. So it's not going to see to the needs of you. It's going to see the needs of itself and use you to obtain that. Now, you don't have to believe me. That's another thing you can look at history and you can see that's what states do. So that means you are in this mostly on your own. And your only rational choice here is to look at your situation and you need to design your homestead and what it provides you so that if it gets dramatically colder, you're still good. And if it gets dramatically warmer you're still good. If it gets dramatically wetter, you're still good. If it gets dramatically drier, you're still good. Because that's about the only four variables there are. That actually makes a lot more than four, because you got colder and drier, you got colder and wetter, you got warmer and drier, and you got warmer and wetter. Right? If you can figure out those those permutations, you're in pretty good shape. You're in pretty good shape. And if you've done that and things stay pretty much the way they are, you're also good. But I invite you to go look. I'll see if I can look the episodes up. I did one in 2008 and one in 2009 talking about the climate cooling. So this is, this is not a surprise for me. And I really recommend you take a look at the work of Christian uh, with Ice Age Farmer. And I think that in some instances his doom and gloom forecasts are a bit beyond reality. Because I think when something is your thing and it's your only thing, you tend to like get so into it that everything justifies it. And I don't think that's a good way to be, but I think that like we need people doing work like that, and his work is really valuable. Um, Adapt 2030 is another great channel to check out. I mean, guys, this the most likely scenario going forward is a cooler, drier planet. I know that flies in the face of everything you've been told. But it's also a much bigger problem. And yes, I know they will go into hysteria and say, but see global warming clause, global cooling, whatever. It does, Again, it doesn't matter who's right. you got to design to the need. All right, let's move on from there. Um, Tactical Redneck said, you know, what is, the, what is the proper diet for livestock? And I think it depends. 
So let's break down a few different livestocks and, and, and see what, what their proper diet would be. Okay, if it's a ruminant, if it's a ruminant, it's a cow, a sheep, a goat, its proper diet is grass. Grass and other brows. That's what it's, there, it, it's, it, there is no world where a cow is going to eat large quantities of grain in nature. Or any bovine analog, right? If you look at what did buffalo eat, you know, American bison eat in this country before we wiped them out, they ate mostly grass. They lived in grasslands. They followed corridors of migration along um, savanna ecosystems, basically civil pastures, nature's version of civil pasture. That's what they did because they wanted to remain somewhere near water And you, before we cut down all the damn trees, there was a lot more water and rivers and creeks through our plains in this country. And it's those valleys that create their own natural riparian uh, systems of, of trees and bushes and shrubs along that edge. And that meant that animal could travel those corridors in mob grazing style systems where they stayed together to protect themselves from the predators before we wiped them out too and still have access to water. And they might migrate across some areas where they had to do without water for a day or two, but they could do that. But they, they stayed to these corridors. So if it's a ruminant, <laughs> that means it ruminates, it's supposed to eat grass and pasture. The end. Period. If we look at something like a pig, a pig is an omnivore. A pig is going to eat pasture and grass and herbs and forage, but it also is going to want to rely a lot more on high-fat sources of food. So nuts and legumes and things like that. If you look at anywhere that pigs are a problem, uh, it's generally, in, in agriculture as a whole, sure, but if you want to know people that really hate the feral pig, go talk to somebody in Hawaii uh, that is, uh, that's growing uh, macadamia nuts. Like the, the, the public enemy number one to the macadamia nut uh, industry in, in Hawaii. If you look at the way that traditionally pigs were raised in the eastern woods, uh, specifically in areas like Virginia, West Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, by early homesteaders, you train the pigs, kind of like you train dogs, and then you turn them out at different times, but the main way that you fatten them up was on the nut mast. So pigs are supposed to be eating this varied diet, but they definitely need some form of good, uh, more of a higher fat uh, and protein component to it. Now, I'm not, I'm not getting into feed yet where we have to buy feed because most of us are going to have to buy some feed. I'm just in an ideal situation. That's what you would have. You'd have a, a foraging animal that was fattened on nut mast. And if you think about it, the most expensive pork in the world is the Almon Ibierco um, uh, uh, de la Bolta, which is the black-footed uh, pigs in Spain that are finished on acorns. It's the most expensive pork in the world for a reason, because it's fantastic. Um, now, when we move on to something like a chicken, as I've said many times, the chickens we keep today do not resemble where they came from in the wild. They are all based on Asian jungle fowl. And they lived in the jungle. That's where, that's where jungle fowl lives in the jungle. They are a consummate omnivore. And they are designed to eat seeds, grains, bugs, browse, 
greenery, herbaceous plants, everything. And But their primary goal in life is to kill small critters and eat them. If you, if you watch, if you have chickens and you throw some feed out and they haven't been fed in a while, they go to that feed right away. But let a single bug blow by and it's on. It's a race to get that bug. So insects need to be a key component to the chicken's diet along with seeds and, and basically all fowl, seeds and grains work for them. They have a crop. That crop is designed to grind up seeds and grain. They, they eat gravel and grit. They store it in their crop, and they have an organ that exists solely for the purpose of grinding up this material that you cannot eat, right? And I know you think, well, we can eat wheat, and we you can't eat it the way a chicken can. Go try. Go try. You know, go if you if you you want to see something interesting, turn ducks or or chickens or turkeys loose in a field of uh, uh, mature millet. They'll start eating the hell out of it. You go try that. I mean, you're not designed for it. They are. So birds are generally seed and nut eaters. There's some, you know, raptors and stuff like that that are carnivorous, um, but they're omnivores. And that's what their diet should be based on. There should be some level of insect and forage along with that grain. Now, I can't just keep going to every particular lifestyle we have, but that's the way to kind of think about it. Always look... What is the wild form of this animal, and what does that wild form live on? If you look at ducks, all ducks that we keep other than muscovies are based on mallards. So go look up what mallards eat. And, and you, you see real quick, they eat minnows, they eat insects, they eat forage, they eat browse. Now, I don't know that mallards really are fond of acorns. I don't really think they are. I've never seen my ducks eat acorns. We have them here. Um... But wood ducks eat the hell out of acorns. So you also have to be careful that you're making the proper analog when you when you choose something in nature. Uh, they eat duck potato, right? They eat shoots. They eat their filter feeders as well. They go in any place of mud or muck, and they stick their beaks in there, and they, they go up and down, up and down, and it looks like they're just chewing on it. But what they're actually doing is they're forcing the liquid and liquefied muck through their beak horizontally. And if you look inside a duck's beak, it's got these little, like almost like a comb, these little teeth. Like I, I, I don't really want to call them teeth, but I don't have a better word for it. This little gr gr you know, grid-like gradient. And that uses that to, to find things. And between slowing it down with that in their tongue, they locate the things that they want to eat, plenty of which we probably can't even see with the naked eye, right? Or not very well with the naked eye anyway. Uh, they, they feed on all types of Uh, plankton, both zooplankton and, and phytoplankton, uh, uh, from what I can tell. And, and chickens, if you watch chickens work compost as it begins to really get worked down, at some point they start eating and you're looking at where they're pecking it, you don't see anything. I think their eyes are better than ours. So always look to where does this animal come from, how does it live in nature, and what does it eat in nature? And then the closest you can get to that, fine. And then don't be afraid to feed the damn things. You know, if you're going to, just look at it like bees, right? You get the greatest beekeepers in the world. They still end up feeding, you know, sugar water or something back to their bees because you're taking honey and you have to replace it with something, right? So we generally don't have 
ecosystems that are sizable enough under our management to provide 100% of the feed for our animals. The more we can provide, though, the better, and the more sustainable we are, and the more uh, regenerative we become, because we're not relying on outside inputs as much. All right, so next up, I have a really interesting question here, and this is this is a common question, many forms of it. This is about seed storage, and uh, Aaron says... Um, Aaron says, this question is for you. Can I keep seeds for three-plus years in a bag with O2 absorbers, or should I give them away and start fresh when I have a garden again? My husband is working on taking a travel healthcare job. We will live in an RV with our three kids. We're thinking uh, we will do this for three to five years while our kids are elementary-aged and homeschool. Well, it's exciting. I am four years into amassing a seed collection from saving mostly. I'd like to keep them in storage, but a storage unit may not be great. They're just in a box. Thanks for so much for what you do. I've been listening for just under a year and listen every day, Aaron. Aaron, uh, thank you for that. Um, let me just say that this is not the hard thing that a lot of people think it is. First of all, if you've been saving seed, that means you've been growing, saving, regrowing, and saving and developing your own seed line. I would want not want to lose that. So if you're going to give some of your seed stock away, I would look for people who are local to your area, assuming you want to go back there, or local to the area you see yourself landing in, and people who are experienced gardeners who will realize the value of this resource you created, and I would give them some portion, not all of your seed, and ask that as they grow and save, they put back some for you so that this process can continue to go on while you're in your travels. Number two, I would save some of your seed. I would put it in something like little brown envelopes and label it and date it and put it in a box, and I would save it. And unless this, this is a really big box, it can probably just stay in your RV with all your stuff. If not, I would give it to somebody who you can trust to hold on to it if, if, that's, if that's possible. Uh, including just mail it to somebody say, when this box comes, just take this box and stick it on the back of a pantry somewhere and hold on to it for me. You might want to tell them what's in there so they don't think it's some kind of nefarious thing. The only thing that will happen during this time period, this three years, is that those seeds will have their germination rate fall. So if you have a couple hundred, couple thousand seeds of a variety, when you go to plant that seed a few years down the road, Just plant three or four seeds in every place that you plant seeds, and if you get a 50% germination rate, you'll still be picking some out. O2 absorbers. We do not need to vacuum seal seeds. We do not need to O2 absorber seed. Seed is incredibly resilient, and in my experience, all of these heroic measures either do nothing to preserve the seed's ability to germinate, or they actually are detrimental to it. Because seed in nature holds its own seed banks. And you can see this when you start working a pasture with animals. And you start to restore the soil quality and the mineral quality. And all of a sudden, all sorts of broadleafs and forbs and herbs start showing up that you haven't seen there for years. In some places in the deserts in Jordan where some of the work has been done that Jeff Lawton has been part of, they've had plants start growing that were thought to be extinct. They, no one has seen one in, in, you know, for 50 years. They've disappeared. There were endemic plants local to the area. They thought they were gone. Well, what they were is they were lying dormant. So with a few exceptions, most seeds will maintain a very high degree of, uh, of germination over at least five to ten years. 
And some seeds will do it over centuries or even decades until the right germination trigger comes along with a caveat. Best storage, cool, dry, dark. That's pretty much all you need. Um, my grandfather's storage mechanism for seeds, he had little brown envelopes, and he had a, the cheap style, like Swisher Sweet cigar box, and he kept it in a cabinet in, in the shanty, which is like an outdoor shed uh, in Pennsylvania. So I, I wouldn't stress this much, but I, I would kind of hedge your bet if you can find some people who will grow it and save it and put some back for you. That would be ideal. Whenever I come up with something that's really great now, that's what I try to do is give some away to people I know I can trust so that if I lose my stock, they still have it. And I think that's a good idea for everybody. Um, next, Matthew says, can you give us an update on your vertical farm? I've been going through podcasts and videos you made about the farm. I saw you switched out from neck cups to Lika. Was this due to flexibility that allowed you plant spacing or due to algae issues in the versions you brought to Belton or both? I operate a CSA farm from Wisconsin. I'd like to build a system for this in personal use uh, in the non-growing season. I would live, it would live in our house, so I'm interested to know if you've had any issues with leaking, failed fittings, etc. Thanks for all you do. You've been a daily part of my life for eight years and counting, Matt. Okay, so first of all, I built my system using one of the uh, like kind of baker's racks, utility racks uh, type systems. And I did that because I did want to take it to Belton a couple of years ago when I still worked with Mother Earth News before they went crazy and got woke and threw Joel Salat out and I won't ever work with them again. So I wanted something that was movable and I wanted something that worked. And the, 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 the flood trays that I used are designed to go on racks just like that, mostly for microgreen growers and other hydroponic growers. So that's why I did that. I wanted a system that could be indoors if you needed it to be indoors. My personal opinion is if you're limited to about that six-foot height, that you would probably be better served going with two versus three trays at this point. It was just a lot of work to maintain plants at a, at a height that would work in there. So you might want to expand your footprint, go with two, Or maybe you go all the way to the top with your microgreens if you want a microgreen layer, and then do but leave more vertical space for each level. I went to Lika, which are the expanded clay pebbles, mainly because I was trying to keep the unit portable, and that meant I wanted the water tank on the bottom, and it limited how much water I could have down there. Because there is a weight limit, and I found it, and it started to compromise the integrity of the, the, the wheels the casters. So my plan for the, the vertical farm right now is pretty much dead. I switched it over to hydroponics. It worked fine. I fed a bunch of people with it uh, at the fall workshop with salad greens and such. But with this frost that came in, my workshop was not something I could devote a lot of heat to. And pretty much it wiped out everything that was in it, which is fine. The vertical farm is being moved to my smaller shop building, It's being rebuilt. I will repurpose the baker's rack for something else. I'm building it with 4x4 four four shelving. I'm building it 8 feet tall to give me enough um, distance between it. And the other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to, for a reservoir, I'm basically going to build a box out of 2 by material and throw a liner in it. I'll be able to hold about 100 gallons of, of, of liquid there. Again, the Lika, what that did is it provided a great deal of displacement so that I can run it with less water in the reservoir than an open tray system. I also, I, this whole project was devoted to, like, I don't need an indoor vertical farm. I never did. Okay? I wanted 
to learn the technology and make it available so that those of you who needed it could break off pieces as they saw fit and use it for yourself. Not to necessarily do it exactly the way that I did it, but understand like, okay, this is the principle, this is what works, etc. When I move it out to the back shop, I have some really great greenhouse plastic that I'll probably include in the design so that I can keep it warmer in the colder months. And it is primarily going to be a seed starting system. I'll, do, I'll grow some basil and stuff like that in one of the trays um, in the wintertime. But mostly it's going to be... I, I mean, I love the fact that you can put in one of those trays four 10-20 trays, right? And those 10-20 trays hold six packs perfectly, little six packs like you buy plants in at the store. And um, you can just take those rapid rooter plugs and just fill up six packs. Drop seeds in them, turn the ebb and flow on, and start plants like crazy. So that's the primary thing that I'll be doing with it. I'll probably also, you know, I'll have one that's done with the Lika at least, probably two that are open. Um, it's all ebb and flow. That's how it's going to stay now. That doesn't mean my first design wasn't great. My first design was great. It just isn't what I need. If you want to grow lots of greens for like CSAs and stuff, you probably want to do whatever you do, you kind of want to base it on that first design with a flow-through Kratkyish system. Like, you can't, don't, tr in all walks with all this stuff, don't try to do what Jack does. Take what Jack does, maybe do it that way, and then improve it yourself. I think we, we so espouse the work that people do that we try to do things exactly the way they do it And we need to be much more of kind of the Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do mindset with all of this stuff. And now, the indoor thing. I only had one leak issue, okay? One leak issue with this, which was probably because I took it apart and put it back together and made so many different versions of it, where I created a hairline crack in one of the trays that I was able to repair with simple uh, uh, epoxy, JB Weld epoxy. However, water changes in, in that, I think it would be kind of difficult, especially with the rack-based system, to do that and not have spills and splashing and stuff like that. So I think that maybe the person that wants a dedicated indoor system using this might want to examine some other potential methods of doing so. And it may be that something like if you have a garage or a shop building, doing something more analogous to what I'm going to do, which is Build your own shelving. It'll cost a hell of a lot less, by the way, because uh, those racks are expensive. It'll be durable and it'll be infinitely flexible. You can put any spacing you want in then, right, or any length. You can make something really long. You put three trays if you want to give up 12 feet of wall space. Um, and think about the size of your reservoir. But if you have something with a relatively small footprint in a shop, even if you can't heat the whole shop, what you can do is, again, plastic in and heat the space. And one of the easiest ways to do that is going to be heat the water. If you have you know, a four-foot by two-foot footprint, so single rack, and you're going eight feet instead of uh, six feet, now you've got enough space between each layer, and you, you plastic that in with somewhere where you can open it when you need to, and you throw something like a 300-watt um, aquarium heater down in that reservoir, and you keep that water in the 70-degree range, I don't think you'll have much supplemental heat you'll have to worry about. You're going to be heating the media every time it runs through, or if you're doing a flow-through, you're going to be heating, you know, replacing it with, with warmed water. 
That's a really great reason to consider doing it that way. Um, you'll have plenty of humidity. At any, at any point, you might have to start providing some ventilation if you have too much humidity. Depending on what you're growing, you could have dampening off issues and stuff. It all depends. Maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe uh, a straight-up heat heating system is. Maybe only heating it in the evening when the lights are off, because those lights generate, when closed in, quite a bit of heat. So I think you have to take, again, a very Jeet Kune Do thing here and figure out what do I want, use the knowledge from my system, and then design yours maybe from the ground up based on that knowledge. There's, there's, there's kind of no substitute for just getting started on it, though. I mean, really. Uh, next up, I have a, um, a question on raised beds from Chris in Minnesota. What's an inexpensive way to fill raised beds? I live in Minnesota. I'm switching from low beds um, to beds that are going to be 22 inches high. What's the best budget-friendly way to fill them? Cheers, Chris. Um, so, it's expensive. I'm just going to say, unless you have access to soil from somewhere and like a truck and a bucket loader or something, it's expensive. And so I would price out around you various like landscaping companies, materials companies, and what they have. And the, I am very excited that I found a new materials place here. The one that I get for compost and all is fine, but their mix sucks. Their, 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 their garden mix is basically 60% compost and 40% sand. You don't want sand. You want topsoil. So I found a place that's a 50-50 mix of topsoil and compost, and they'll deliver here. But the uh, the perennial beds that I'm putting in in my spring workshop, I will have more money in the soil than the lumber. And that's just, when you go that deep, you know, 20, 30 inches deep, that's just part of the, the, the plan. One way to mitigate this, and what I'm going to say first, though, and this is an added expense, but it's totally worth doing. You build tall raised beds, even shallower ones, I recommend doing it, but definitely your tall ones with that much soil across that much lumber. I really think it makes sense to go out and buy weed blocker fabric and line the inside, not necessarily the bottom, because if you're going that deep, weeds aren't coming all the way up from the bottom. I'm talking about the sides, so that the soil's not laying directly against the, the, the timbers or whatever you're using. And so all you do is you just kind of figure out your linear feet, You roll it out and just hit it with a staple, just a cheap staple gun to hold it in place. Because once the dirt's there, it's not going anywhere. And that's what I've done. Some of you guys have asked me about, is there like um, pond liners in my tall raised beds by my pond? No, that's just landscape fabric. It's all that is. That'll improve your longevity, and it just it'll just work nicer. I'll just leave it at that. But then once that's done, you can think about some things that will maybe improve things and yet not cost a lot of money. So... We only need maybe a foot of real soil to garden it. We can do with less. So if we have 20 inches, one really cheap way, and you might find it's cheaper even if you have to buy it, but if you can get it locally from tree trimmers and stuff, wood mulch. Of your 20 inches or 22 inches, put half of it, the first half of it, in wood mulch. It will break down slowly over time. It's not going to rob all the nitrogen. Let's just get, it's basically a loose form of hugel culture. Okay? And then you cut your fill requirement in half for your soil. And that's, that's a pretty, a reduction by half is pretty good. And I think you'll find that wood chips will cost you less um, if you even have to buy them than soil mix will cost you. I'll also say this I don't care what kind as long as it's not cedar. 
You don't want if there's some cedar mixed in, I don't care. But usually that doesn't happen because they get more money for the cedar chips. Just mixed hardwood and softwood stems, leaves, everything, wood chips. Half that, half soil, and then know this: yes, it will continue to go down over time and collapse as things break down. Soil settles in all raised beds. Every year, that's when you bring in a new layer of compostables or compost itself, or maybe even bring in some additional soil. Next thing, just because your bed is 22 inches high, doesn't mean you need 22 inches of soil. If you fill it up and it's four inches from the top, that's fine. It's lots of room for mulch. And then the big thing, especially with Minnesota, where you're not going to garden through your winters, every year at the end of the season, throw down some sort of cover crop, and when it winter kills, just mulch to the top. And if, if, if you have problems with weeds coming up through the mulch and all, tarp it. Tarp it. And before you mulch it, get some sweet feed or some old chicken feed or something and just cover, like pretend it, like do a double dose of what you would do if you were using uh, synthetic fertilizer. Put that down and put your mulch down. You're going to feed the soil organisms and you're going to be building soil up. And over the years, you'll get to a point where it won't matter anymore. Even if you start out with it four or five inches from the top, a few seasons in, you'll have it built all the way to the top. And the amount of fungal activity you're going to have if you use the wood chip base method. And by the way, it's exactly what we're going to do here. That's one of the ways I'm going to cut the cost of this project. I have a huge pile of wood chips. I bribed. And what I did is I went out and I bribed guys that were cutting for the county with beer. I was like, hey, can you guys just dump your wood chips in my field? And they're like, you could tell they were like, they would do it, but they really didn't want to. And I'm like, what kind of beer do you drink? Right? What kind of beer do you drink? And they're like, uh, Miller Lite, Coors Light, right? Mostly Hispanics. And in Texas, that's that's the number one, two beers, right? Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller's Light. So I, w I went out and I bought uh, six 12-packs, two of each, Bud Light, Coors Light, Miller Light. I brought it back to them. Those guys brought truck after. I have just massive pile now. It costs me way less than beer. You know, you're buying cheap beer. You make, And I know that when they're in the area again, they're going to be more than likely to want to come back because it's amazing. You give a guy 20 bucks, and he's less happy about it, it seems, than if you give him 12 bucks worth of beer. And, and maybe it's because, you know, he has the beer so he can drink it. He doesn't have to explain to his wife where it went. I don't know. Um, but, yeah. All right, so uh, next up, I've got another one here. Um, this one is from... Give me just a second, guys. I'm a little discombobulated right now. Now, at this point, this is this is why I'm discombobulated, because I'm, I'm looking at the next question, but I'm saving that for the last one. I want to talk to you a little bit about what I think really happened with the Texas power outages. And here's the basics of it. Number one, windmills did freeze, period. And that did hurt our electrical output. This thing about, well, it was a smaller portion of the hole or whatever, it doesn't matter. When you are at the edge, a shortfall is a problem. And the number one producer of wind energy in the country is Texas, day in, day out, period. We have a massive amount of wind energy in Texas. When they tell you it's only a small fraction of the total energy output, we're producing over 25% of our energy with wind right now in the state of Texas. Okay. And let's think about how we got that way. The main way we got that way is not state policy. It's electrical generation policy by the companies that make power 
because the federal government gives them lots of money to build windmills with. It's not the state of Texas going, we want to be the leader in wind energy. It's the state of Texas having a lot of very open country where wind blows most of the time, where it's easy to install windmills, and a assload of federal subsidy to build windmills. And this, again, this doesn't really anything to do with Texas. Any place that those things come together, you're going to get windmills. Because if I can make a shitload of money building something, and I'm in the business of building things, I'm probably going to build that thing. So, so that is how we ended up with so much dependent on the wind. While windmills froze, and, but they want to tell you, it's because we don't have de-icing technology like Holland does. or whatever. We're not Holland. We can't invest in the infrastructure of Holland to keep a wind machine turning. But wind machines icing up, <laughs> you know how they say leave the water trickling and it won't freeze, the water won't freeze up or take a lot longer for it to freeze up? Wind machines work a lot that way, too. If a wind machine is spinning, it's very rare that that machine will freeze up while spinning at any reasonable rate of speed. This storm came in, and we had almost no wind with it, which has been going on in Germany for months, by the way. They've had the same kind of winter over there, only it's Germany, so it's colder for longer than Texas. So some of these wind machines froze up because the wind wasn't blowing, and then when the wind blew, they couldn't go. But a lot of them just didn't produce any energy because the wind wasn't blowing. We also get about 2% of our power from solar. And almost everywhere we have solar farms, it snowed and covered the solar panels. 2% doesn't sound like much, but it is when you're in a shortfall. Um, and when the, sun, when, when the snow was gone, we still had quite a bit of time where we didn't have a really intense sunshine in those areas. So there was a failure of renewables. That's one thing. On top of this, though, when you're producing 25% of your power from wind energy on a day-to-day -day basis, and you're a power company and you're managing a natural gas plant, and it has three, let's say, three big power generators in it, you don't run all three of them. Because the same companies that are running the gas plants are running windmill farms. Okay? The, 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 not in all cases, but in, in quite a few. So you end up where that plant only needs to run at two-thirds capacity. And a lot of these generation systems are old. They've been around a long time. And they're very expensive to repair. So you end up taking parts from, let's say, generator number one that's no longer in commission, and you, you're, you're using them to maintain two and three. Well, when the state uh, Overwatch agency, ERCOT here, he says, hey, uh, it, we need more. You don't just turn it on. It doesn't work that way. This isn't a tea kettle. You just throw it on and turn the fire on and it starts boiling in a few minutes. That's not how it works. So we had machines that were offline that couldn't come online. Not fast enough to matter. And by the time they would have gotten them online, we'd already be through it and not need them anymore and they'd shut them down. Additionally, we had machines that were up and running and we couldn't get enough gas. Gas went into a major shortage of supply Uh, causing Governor Abbott to put a moratorium on gas being exported from the state for like a couple weeks. And you, it, it's not that the gas can't leave the state, it's it has to be offered in the state before you can sell it out of the state. So we had a gas shortage of natural gas, which also hit people who use natural gas to heat their homes because it was hard for the gas company to keep the gas flowing because everybody's burning more of it to stay warm. All right. Um, then I have not confirmed this. 
but I'm 99% sure about this. When they decided to run rolling blackouts, and they're basically turning these people off, turn these people on. Then turn these people off, turn these people on. Then keep doing it. And that way you can shed like 25-30% of the grid, but never have anybody down for more than a couple hours. And most people would have been able to get by fairly well by doing that. Regardless of why, they screwed it up. They turned it off, and they're like, well, you know, we had to keep, they're lying. We had to keep it down. No, you didn't. You couldn't turn it back on. They were trying like hell to turn it back on. They had generators down, and they had portions of the grid down at the same time. Because think of it like this. Your little kid goes into the pantry, finally learns what a light switch is, starts going click, 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 light on, light off, light on. And all of a sudden you hear the light bulb go. And that light bulb had a gear left to it, but that do 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 broke something. It's a little more simplistic than what happened, but it happened. And I, I can't get you 100% on that, but I can get you from some direct feedback from some people that were working line that to some degree that is what happened. I don't have specific details or I'd give it to you, but I've already been reached out to where I hypothesized that before and said you're dead on. That did happen too. So they screwed up the implementation of the rolling blackouts on top of all this. Now, here's the thing. Everything is fixable in this state. We can continue to, to, to be the leader in wind energy. There's no reason not to be because most of the time it works. We can put in more reserve capacity in gas, oil, coal, nuclear plants. We can do distributed storage, which desperately needs to happen more than the other ones. We need batteries in people's homes. And I think that the long game there is the Tesla Powerwall or a similar product in almost every home in America. There will eventually become programs that make it very so stupid cheap for you that you'd have to be stupid not to have one. And what that does is it distributes storage. Because these plants can only afford to put in so much storage in one central place because central storage equals central failure. By having distributed storage, that would let us load share the grid a lot better. But you cannot expect that this is going to happen. And instead of repeating what I said this morning, I did an episode of Miyagi Mornings this morning on talking to your friends and family about being more prepared and using this storm as a way to have that conversation. And I really addressed the four things that people really need to have in their life to deal with these types of outages. Because I'm going to tell you what's not going to happen. In spite of some of the hype by foil hat wearing morons that was going on out there, a grid like Texas's grid is not going to go down and collapse and stay down and they can't get it back on. That's, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what did happen. It didn't come close to happening. No. They're going to get power back on. But you might have to go a week or two with no power. And so you need supplemental heat. You need good water storage. You need supplemental electricity. And you need to have the mental mindset and to understand what your tools are and what to do and how to get it done. And you need stored fuel. A generator and a five-gallon can of gas is almost worthless in this situation. I'm talking a minimum 60 gallons of gas and a minimum of at least four grill tanks of propane if you're using backup heat with propane. If you're using kerosene heaters, some equivalent there for that. Anyway, I'll let it go from there. 
Let's talk about this other one here. This is an interesting question, and I think this is a good idea about to be poorly executed. Jamie in Florida says, I'm in North Florida Panhandle, and I'm in the process of buying three-and-a-half-acre parcel with a small house on it. The property's far in the country, surrounded by farmland and deer leases. I'm wondering if possibly leasing out my land to hold permaculture classes in a short-term business idea. I have no experience in permaculture, but I've been following and reading up on the subject for years, waiting to have my own space to build something. Well, the time is here, and I thought it might make a good show topic, something along the lines of hiring uh, a specialty to come in and teach courses. I'm thinking this would be a good way to learn permaculture while having help customers build a system. Uh, also, once established land can be used as a small farm, selling surplus along with expanding courses. Uh, thanks for all you do. A long-term listener. Love feedback on this idea. Jamie. Okay, so Jamie, every person that buys their homestead is like, I got this idea. I'm going to have permaculture courses, and then people are going to come here, and I'm going to make money, and I'm going to get gardens put in or whatever put in for free. And you can do it, but I'm just going to put it this way. There's a lot more broke-ass permaculture teachers than ones that are doing reasonably well with a middle-class income. It shouldn't be the case, but it is. And part of it is because they rely too much on courses like this. And there's only so many of these courses like this that can be run in a year throughout the country inside this niche market. And permaculture has a very broad demographic. So within my audience, the demographic is rather affluent. My overall demographic is rather affluent. When I say affluent, I don't mean rich. I just mean most people that listen to this show get by fine. Okay. In the broader permaculture demographic, there are a lot of broke-ass people. that They want to go to these courses, and they don't have the money. So what I'm going to suggest is the idea that you could use this property and set it up to cater to events is a sound idea. And if some of those events are permaculture events, great. But why limit yourself to that? I think that you should figure out, how do I put in the necessary infrastructure to cater to classes and events, full stop. And then market that, and if you can then niche down into well, permaculture, organic gardening, etc., great idea, great idea. I did a whole show on running workshops and events. I, I, my other thing with this is I want anybody that wants to try anything to try it, But I want you to understand, this is harder to do well than people think it is. It really is a difficult thing to execute well every time. Now, the idea that you would lease this space to someone else to do classes alleviates that to a degree, depending on what you're providing. If you're providing space and maybe a shop building for them to use with some power and stuff... Okay, and then they take care of all their own logistics and food and everything. Because you're going to find, if you do this, feeding people is difficult. I listened to Jeff Lawton in one of his presentations say that one of the hardest things to do with classes is feed people and make everybody happy. You bring permaculture people in, and if they're TSP permaculture people, you throw brisket down and everybody's happy. I've been to events, well, is this organic? It was grown over there, but is it organic? It was grown right there on the ground. Is organic? Where's your vegan options? I mean, you talk about a group of people that are a pain in the ass. You draw from the general demographic of permaculture. 
the, the obscene level of complete elitist bullshit that I heard at um, Diego Footer's last Permaculture Voices 3, I think is a big part of why he quit doing them. There were people there that only came for the luncheon on the second or third day to meet people and stuff. They weren't there for the whole thing. They weren't full-paying customers. Okay? Bitching, well, the food's not organic. The food's, It's at a hotel, stupid. Do you know what you have to do when you run an event at a hotel and you have dinners and lunches at the hotel? You are required, not optional, required, to use the hospitality services of the hotel. And most of these hotels, the bigger your event gets, the more they require you to spend on hospitality services. You think it would be the opposite, like, oh, gee, I brought in a thousand people. I filled up your bars and your restaurants for a week. You would be grateful. But no, they make you buy more. And to listen to those. There was one lady, honest to God, I wanted to. We were up on a rooftop, a beautiful place, having lunch. And it was good food. And it was, you know, nice salad. I mean, there was if you couldn't find something to eat there, you didn't need to eat. <laughs> I wanted to pick this lady up and throw her physically off the roof into the harbor, where she would have been far more useful as fish food than to the human race. I know that sounds awful, but I'm telling you, if you go into the broad permaculture demographic where you get into the mud-rolling, purple-breathing hippies, you get a lot of that. And so if you control your demographic and you set expectations so you don't have to deal with it, that's one thing. But it's something you really have to look at is the food. You know, we don't feed – first of all, my workshops are not 100% permaculture, right? We're not doing PDCs and stuff like that. We don't do all local or all organic. i got to feed 60, 70 people, sometimes 80 people. You know, all I just want to do is make sure everybody eats well. And it's always worked well for me. But it's because we – in advance, tell you what you're going to get. But man, I've been to some permaculture workshops, PDCs, etc. Holy crap. And you know what I'm also thinking for most of these people? You don't eat that way at home. You don't eat that way. I know there's Cheetos in your freaking, your virtue signaling and being a pain in the ass. Like some of them maybe, yeah, but I, a lot of them I just look, I just look at the person and I look at their physical state of health and I'm like, you eat Cheetos and honey buns. I, I don't want to hear your shit. You eat Cheetos. So just be careful with that. And I would go more into the broad concept of we run events here. And maybe they're permaculture-esque, like gardening and stuff like that. And if you can get work done, do it. But I think there's getting work done and there's being good at running events. And I think you get good at running events and then you can combine that with getting work done. And and be realistic as to how much you're going to get done. Because I, I'll tell you the other thing I've, I've learned. If students know exactly what they're getting into... They're pretty happy to come give you a day's work or two in a, in a multi-day workshop. But they need to feel like they're taken care of, and they do. They need to not feel like they are, you know, reverse slave labor. Where not only are they not getting paid to work, but they're basically paying for the privilege of working. You have to, to size the projects to the head count, to the point where everybody does a little bit, and it doesn't feel, it feels good. It doesn't feel like really hard work. Um, and the other side of this... I've, I've had this problem myself. When you get that many people at a workshop doing a project, it's very hard to stay on everything and make sure everything's done right. And you need to pick and choose what you let students do. Because they will plant things in the wrong place. They will plant things shallow. They will bury things and hide them. They, I mean, it just happens. So be careful with it, I guess. But 
I, I think you know more along the lines of how can you make money by having people come use your property is the way to think. Last but not least, I want to just reiterate that I, there's two services that I don't see any reason that you wouldn't use today. One is called PreSearch, P-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot org. There's a link in the show notes. And if you use it, it is an affiliate link. And if you have an audience of your own, then look up the affiliate program and you put your link out for your people because it's free money. And the way pre-search works is you use it as a search engine like Google. So far, I've found that nine out of ten times it provides great results, very similar to Google's. Uh, I love the breakdown, etc. And every time you run a search, you make one quarter of a pre up to like four a day, which is their coin. I've seen some people on MeWe where I've posted about it saying, boy, that's going to take forever. You have to have 2,000 pre to withdraw 1,000 pre or whatever. It's like, okay, do you search for stuff every day online anyway? Yeah, okay, then do it. So what? So what? Just use the search engine instead of the one that spies on you and records your information and gives it to the government and gives it to corporations. Use the one that's decentralized that doesn't do that and get some money. I mean, I... I I can't think of something that is better suited to people that want to get into cryptocurrency without spending a ton of money. The other one is Odyssey, also known as Library. LBRY.TV, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com. Again, I have links in the show notes. They are affiliate links for invite. I really appreciate you guys using them. So if you have not signed up yet, consider using my link. If you have an audience of your own that you can invite to your channel, and you should if you're a creator, do that. Make the money. Um... Library in particular, uh, the LBC token, which is what Odyssey and Library pays you in, has kind of gone on a tear. It was not that long ago. It was trading at two cents a, a coin. It's trading at 16 right now. And it was up over 20 cents over the weekend. Crypto had a pretty big bull run over this weekend and had a pretty dramatic pullback. That said, Bitcoin still sitting at 53 grand. Um, I guess it died again. That's usually what happens. You know, it's, it's worth a billion times more than it started out, and it's dead because uh, it, it pulled back from a high. Um, but all crypto's done pretty damn well uh, over over the weekend and over the month. Uh, on pre-search, the pre-token's trading for about 7.5 cents. Um, it certainly has the potential long-term to do better. They're basically making it the currency that, as they build the search engine, that advertisers will need to use to buy advertising. So... I've always said when it comes to a cryptocurrency, I, 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 I can't stand this concept of, you know, they have something that's in ICO right now called student coin. It's going to revolutionize cryptocurrency for colleges and universities. Now, do they want a cryptocurrency? I, see, I just, I'm sorry. I, you've got to show me the utility of the token. And when it comes to the pre-search token, it's built into the search engine. When it comes to the library token, it's built into Odyssey Library. Like, it's, it's how people tip me in. I get tipped every day in LBC coin. I earn LBC coin every day, and it's going to be something that, as that platform builds out, and there's things that creators might want to buy from the company, they can use it to, to transact. There's, there's a lot of value in that. And so you have two tokens here that basically you can earn for using the service in different ways. You can purchase really, really cheap. And the services are alternatives to big tech. And just because it might take a while to build up any significant balance, I'll just say this to you. What if somebody had paid you $0.07 cents for every Internet search you had done for the last 10 years? And what if that $0.07 cents could go up after the fact? 
guys, use these services. I, I, yes, I have self-interest at heart. I do put out affiliate links, but I, you know what? If you're like, well, I don't want Jack to get anything for it, whatever. I don't know why you listen to the show then, but whatever. That's fine. Use it anyway. I've had somebody email me and goes, should I sub a new account? I didn't know that you had an affiliate. I don't care. I ain't worried about the 25 cents or whatever. You just use these services. They're better services. They respect your privacy. Um, they're alternatives to censorship media. Use them, guys. Pre-search and um, Odyssey slash library. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us is become a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more there. You can sign up and use the discounts and get your money back and then some every year. So it's really easy to do. The other way is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you're going to shop online, just go there first and start there. No matter what you buy, you'll help us out. You'll see all the items that I review. And I will bring items around on a daily basis, new ones, old ones, what have you. Today's one has been around a long time. It was one of the first items I ever put on T-SPAS. It is the Nesco NPC-9 Smart Pressure Canner. It's also known as the Shard Canner, the Carry Canner. They're all the same. There's been brand absorption here. But this is the best electric canner on the market. And, yes, you can pressure can with it. I'm not going to even go through again while you can. You can read the write-up if you want to. It's on sale today for $108. bucks. It's 19% off. Um, to me, this is one of those things like... If you're a prepper, a homesteader, et cetera, this belongs in your home. It does everything an Instapot does and more, including pressure canning. So to me, that is incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. You can brown and then braise or stew with it. You can pressure cook. You can pressure can. Um, it pretty much does it all. And at $108, bucks, it is, it's not the best deal I've ever seen on it, but it's a good one. And if you've been wanting to add it to your kitchen and your homestead and your pantry, this would be a good time to do it. It doesn't go much lower. I've seen it down to like $99. bucks. It's the lowest I've ever seen it. All right, with that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is we kick off um, a week of driving music, highway songs, uh, what have you. This is one of my favorite bands of all time. I don't think I've played them Hardly ever, maybe a couple times over the years I've played them, um, from one of my favorite periods of music, 60s through 70s, right? Bachman Turner Overdrive. And since we're talking about driving songs, highway songs, you know what it is. Roll on down the highway. This is one of those songs, I, I remember when I was broke, I mean really broke. I was saving up to be broke. I was so broke. Son of a coal miner, broke. And uh, son of a bootleg coal miner, broke. That's, that's, that's a new kind of broke. And my first car was a 1975 Pontiac Grand Prix LJ, uh, big old four-barrel Rochester uh, carburetor in it. And I had my Radio Shack, you know, uh, stereo with the amplifier and six by nines that every kid did back then in the 80s. And man, and a tape deck. And BTO was one of my favorite bands to crank up and just go be free as a teenager that's what cars do for teenagers man they set you free to go out and do things and uh, this is one of those songs you had to be careful because that big old low lead sled when that foot started going down on that 455 and those secondaries opened up in that Rochester it took off and it was an easy song to drive too fast too we'll be putting out a lot of music like that this week with that it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast <laughs> <laughs>